Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is journalist Angela Garbess, author of Essential Labor. We're going to talk about what it would look like to venerate the economy of care. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. This to me is basic, but it feels like we've drifted really far from it in our culture, that to be a human, the basic condition of being a human is being needful. You know, like we need air, we need housing, we need food, we need companionship, we need all of these things. And somehow in our culture, it feels like you're asking for too much if you need things. Right, you're supposed to be super self-sufficient. You're supposed to be able to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're supposed to be able to like handle everything. And it's just, it's work and it is, it's too much for one person to do. (laughs) So says author and journalist, Angela Garbess, who in the first pages of her new book, Essential Labor, expands the concept of mothering, creating a tent for everyone of any gender who is engaged in the process of creation and care. This means this is a book for everybody. A first-generation Filipino-American, Angela makes the argument that the United States must reorient the way we think about everything, the economy in particular, to venerate the vital act of caring, of tending to each other's needs, and of prioritizing the collective. Otherwise, we are lost. In our conversation today, we touch on what this means for all of our lives, including the ways that people like me must come out of our shame pockets to talk about all the people who care for us, labor that has become largely invisible behind the veneer of our projections of what it looks like to be a functioning family in America. As I explained to Angela, our family would cease to work without Vicky, who is effectively our third parent. I believe Angela is right that we need to be having these collective conversations first and publicly in order to push culture to reprioritize against a new axiom of what really matters in our lives. Okay. Let's get to our conversation. I loved your book just in the way that it puts essential, it's essential labor, right? I mean, it's this idea of it is essential. It is in many ways life affirming. It's also exhausting and it is labor, right? Yeah. This idea of care that's often joyful, often not, and yet the most foundational pursuit of all of our lives 
regardless of whether we have children or not. And yes. whether we're mothers, fathers, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, it, I mean, the book is primarily about caring for children and ourselves. Well, it's sort of the space that I occupy. And it was also written from the like depths of pandemic caregiving, which, well, it was a lot of things, but <laughs> difficult and isolating and all of that stuff. But yes, like, thank you. For, I like this framing because care is much more than just caring for children. Care is caring for ourselves, for other adults, our people, our elders, and really like this is the work that is inescapable. Mm-hmm. Even if you have no dependents, even if you can, you know, DoorDash or Instacart and have people shop for you, you still ultimately have to brush your teeth and <laughs> wash your hair. And like, that is really, that's important. Like we talk about it as like self-care, but before it became that, it, it's just, it's, I think is the only work, real work that humans have to do. Well, and you think about DoorDash and you would think about Instacart and you think about someone tenderly or not picking out your produce. Those are all acts of care. And, you know, you wrote, the pandemic revealed that mothering is some of the only truly essential work humans do. Without people to care for our children, we are lost. Writing about mothering right now is more consequential than ever. But again, like it's a bigger umbrella, right? This mm-hmm. this tending to life in all of its forms. No human is truly self-sufficient and making that idea primary to the way that we think about life rather than ancillary or woman's work. I know it feels critical and it felt particularly critical during the pandemic, but how do you, how do we keep that alive? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. (laughs) It's true. I want to back up and say that, I, I mean, this to me is basic, but it feels like we've drifted really far from it in our culture that to be a human, the basic condition of being a human is being needful. You know, like we need air, we need housing, we need food, we need companionship, we need all of these things. And somehow in our culture, it feels like you're asking for too much if you need things, right? You're supposed to be super self-sufficient. You're supposed to be able to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're supposed to be able to like handle everything. And it's just, it's work. And it is, it's too much for one person to do, (laughs) right? Like we can't do it alone. We just can't. And I really just, I want us to talk about that, you know, and, you know, we did see it, like you were saying, like in the pandemic, but we, we realized, you know, if you were, I love this. I love taking the conversation away from parenting because this is, this is care. Like really people felt our mental health suffered because we couldn't be with people. Right. And I don't think it's just that we need someone to help take care of us. We as humans, I really think it's one of the most beautiful human things is we are, we want to take care of other people. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I really believe that. (laughs) That We create an affirm life. Like, that's what it means to be human. Yes. And even like you just said, pulling, pulling yourselves up from your bootstraps. What I love about that saying is that it was and I don't remember like the mythology or the roots of that phrase, but it's an impossibility. You can't pull yourself up. You can't pull yourself up by pulling on your boots, if that makes sense. Right. Like yeah, it no, no, intended, no. <laughs> it was like written, it was like intended not as a joke, but as like a fallacy. And oh. yet it's become 
this primary mythology of becoming self-made, which just like underlines the fallacy. Does that right? Mean? Yeah. And- no, I I really appreciate that because I was like, I I mean, I used that phrase and I was like, I don't really we know what do. that means, right? But, but it's to supposed know, to be absurd. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's just become part of. I mean, it's so much. It's like we base so many things on like a myth or like a misunderstanding. Like, I, you know, earlier we were talking about going to pick up our kids. And I think about how so much of family life is based on this myth. Like we have outpaced. Like if we stop and question, there's so many things that we just sort of take for granted about our culture. Right. But schools getting out at 2.30 or 3 is built on the idea that there's someone to pick them up. Right. There's someone at home. And there's someone who goes out and works professionally, right? And then that work is more valuable than care work and the other things. But it's all, we live under these conditions that they don't make sense. Like they don't make sense for people. No. And speaking of phrases that are inherently absurd, you write, I reject the American idea of quote unquote, earning a living. I am alive and I don't need to do anything to earn my existence. We don't have to prove that we are worthy of comfort, ease, pleasure, or satisfaction. I don't need a job to contribute something to my community. I just need to be me. And that phrase, earning a living, is... WTF is what I say to that. (laughs) I mean, it's really like, I am alive. I have, thanks to like my mother's labor, I have like earned quote unquote my living. I, I don't need to earn it. I have it. Yeah. You know, when we really, I think people are, th- it feels to me that a lot of people in America are threatened or scared by this idea that simply by being born, simply being a human being, we are born deserving. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm talking about deserving of basic human rights, which we do not guarantee in this country, like health, health care, a place to live, right? Time to spend with family. Like those are really, that's it. Like we don't have a guaranteed like floor mm-hmm. for life. And so I think people really feel like people who are fortunate privileged to have some sort of comfort. I feel like it's really important to them. I feel like we associate wealth with this idea that like we've done something to earn this. The truth is a lot of people who are wealthy, it's generational wealth, right? That's, that's not everyone, but that's like a, that's definitely the case in America, right? And we built American wealth because we had slavery, right? So these are like a lot of that, the work was done by other people while the wealth was accumulated by others. And I think like that idea of sharing resources, comfort, and power, it's hard. I think that a lot of people at this point understand their systemic problems that lead to the inequality in our country. And, but I think we're sort of at this place where people are like, well, what do we, how do we, what do we do about that? Right. Right. And I think, I don't know. I, I feel like people have to really sort of confront that like to give everyone a decent life and it can be a, a simple life. It doesn't have to be extravagant. Um, we'll like have to share some things <laughs> and we'll have right. to, you know, like figure some new ways out of being in community with people. We have to undo a lot of myths and things that we have been told and maybe things that we've never really questioned and things that we just take for granted 
You know, there's a lot of stuff that we just don't, I don't know. I, I just want us to think more deeply about this idea of who's deserving and who deserves what. And yeah. and what and the qualities of a good life and what yeah. all of all of this accrual of wealth gets or doesn't. To that end, I, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about. I, I mean, I guess the people that I want to be around, that I want to be in community with, I think the people who listen to your podcast, I, I really believe that if you were to ask someone, what are the best, most important, like most valuable things in your life? Most people would not say things that were purchased. Right. Like most people would talk about, I think, relationships, love, things that actually are, in terms of money, unquantifiable, right? So you're accruing a lot of wealth, which is cool for people who want that and they get to have the things that they want. But really, like for most people, I really think that the things that make life worth living are not things. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. It's the difference between worth and value, too. You know, you mm. can be worth a lot of money and yet not have a lot of things that have value to you that you would miss in a fire. And I mean, there's a reason, right? Like that when people 
evacuate. I mean, I live in California, so I think about evacuating forest fires all the time. But there are reasons that you are like, oh, throw like my passports and some photos, right? My kids and my pets. At the end of the day, like all of this stuff doesn't guard against life. Yeah, I mean, you're not you're not hacking Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) But um, (laughs) no, but I think we live. You know, as you were saying. America is amazing and I'm grateful to live here and and for my life and yet we have there's a lot of cruelty baked into our culture and we're mm. a country with no social net no guaranteed basic income as you mentioned no guarantee of healthcare a lot of basic essential elements of care that make any fall feel far less precipitous there's no net mm. and so I think it also stokes so much fear even when you have a lot you this idea that you're one job loss away from calamity or you know it's very cruel it's very cruel and i think that if we had a more equalized culture if we had a, a far less extreme wealth disparity which is only mm-hmm. getting worse every day particularly in the pandemic i mean it's wild it's 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 wild what's happening when you look at someone like jeff bezos and then you think yeah. about the average amazon worker I feel like this is the right place to mention, you know, that poverty is a, it's a, it's a human created condition, right? Like, and I think that it's built on this idea that some, it it perpetuates this idea that some people are more worthy than others or the work they do is more important or, Mm -hmm. but like we created a system in which people are poor and don't have a, standard of living. And then we make it so that like to get benefits and assistance, there's, you have to jump through a lot of hoops and it's administrative uh, forms. And it's really hard to get out of poverty. And we could just, it could go away. <laughs> like Jeff Bezos could like eliminate poverty if he wanted to, right? Like we could do if we directed our funds in, in different ways. You know, I think it's, yeah, like that, that wealth gap is just so astounding to me. And I also think it's built on this idea of scarcity. And this is where I think a lot of people, a lot of people that I'm trying to talk to with this book, I mean, I think I assume good intent. I mean, I think a lot of people are, want to figure out ways, right? To be, to be better, to be more a part of a community, to raise children who, who value other people, people, right, who like a more equitable society. And I think that but there is this idea of scarcity that's like baked into American culture where it's like, I have to, because there's no social safety net, I have to hoard whatever resources I have, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about when people talk, uh, I mean, my kids are in public school and the way I explain it to them is, you know, what's good enough for our neighbor as Mira is good enough for you, right? Like public school is a really cool thing that everyone's paying for. Right. But we know that it's underfunded and there are problems within it. And so I think in parenting, because everyone wants what's best for their child, you know, like I relate to that so deeply. I understand that. But I think the idea of what's best, we've drifted from the idea that what's best is what's best for everyone. And including the people who need the most resources and then we need the most assistance. And so I hear people talk about, you know, like we're going to send our kid to private school because they just need like a little more attention. We need like smaller classroom sizes. 
And I, I get it. That's the thing is like, I understand that so much. Like I want my child to have like every advantage, but like when you, when you pull out of those things, then it weakens that public resource. Do you know what I mean? And you're giving. I do. Although I think it's extra, I think, I don't know how it is in Seattle. I think it becomes um, extra complicated because not only is there a disparity between public and private school, but then within the public school system, there's extreme disparity and inequity Mm -hmm. between different public schools and they're not funded equally. Yes. And, you know, I live in the west side of LA, which is wealthier and our public schools attend school and it there's a lot beyond it being well funded by our neighborhood there's a lot of extra funding that goes into mm-hmm. the school for extra teachers aides and that's all great but it's actually because of its 10 school status it's like aggressively competitive and I mean it's a it's it's a whole complicated yeah it was too aggressive I mean we our kids go to private school because it like crushed my son's soul he couldn't keep up like he couldn't as a kindergartner he was falling behind by week six Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) yeah no I mean I'm you know I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you because I also it's not like I, what I'm, I understand, you know what I mean? Like I feel all of these things and it is really complicated, but I also like, I'm again, like, I'm just glad to be talking about it because we can't, I don't know. I I feel like it's very, we're, you know, we always talk about like our country is so divided, right? Like, and it feels like you have to be this or that, like there's no nuance Mm -hmm. to it, you know? And I, I get that. And it's like, when you see it affect your child, like you are like, no, I want to, do what's best for them. But, and because also the way the systems are set up, because while I believe public school is, I mean, public education is a wonderful thing. It's not funded equally. Exactly. Like you said, and you can't, I mean, I am like making this choice, right? Because for me, like I live in a particularly diverse neighborhood and for me, like, it's not just about book stuff, but I also feel like I have, I happen to have a seven-year-old who's kind of a nerd, you know what I mean? Like, so I don't, I worry less about her academically and what I see, like she's getting a great education, but what I also see is that, you know, the school translates all of the materials into eight core languages. Amazing. Like I see that she's like developing life skills or this idea of analyzing, like if she has like people in the neighborhood, like there are other aspects to it. People have different priorities and that's fine. That's great. Like everyone is different and the system makes it so that it's, it's very hard. You know what I mean? Like you believe in it, but it is when the rubber meets the road, the system is so imperfect that. Yeah. Oh, I completely, I completely hear you. And then this is the other ironic twist, not to like get into the, but, but based on where we live and how segregated Los Angeles is, our public school is very affluent and very white. And so he mm-hmm. has a more diverse socioeconomically racially experience at the school that he's at by a fairly significant margin, which is, I know it all seems really yeah. backward, but I'm also glad we're talking about it because I feel like so many of these things become, there's so much shame, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it becomes No, you write at the beginning, and this is in the context of your mom, but then you get into this idea of care in this country, too, and how it's paid for and largely invisible. 
You write, one of the luxuries of my childhood was to remain oblivious to all the work that went into raising me. Mm-hmm. And then we think about the childcare industry and the house care industry, which is predominantly women of color, Latina women. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, and black women and Asian women. Yeah. yeah. It's very much brown and black women. Yeah. And nursing. And it becomes this unspoken, invisible labor mm-hmm. and where no one is acknowledging what's required or maybe required is not the right word, but like what is involved and in uh way that needs to be much more visible and much more obviously compensated. Yeah. And And this is, I mean, one of the things that this is where this, so when I think about that shame, I always think about who benefits. So what shame like grows and thrives in silence, right? Like that's really where it's a lot of it is internal and private. And I think about that as who benefits from shame. It's not us personally, right? It's it's something bigger. It's systems of power, I think. And so when I, I I've been asked questions about like nannies, and someone has told me like I I actually feel like kind of guilty, like I don't want to talk about it. I feel super bougie having a nanny, right? And I'm just like we none of like this system is not set up really for anyone <laughs> to do well. Like you before a child is six, like you are entirely on your own to figure out childcare. That's like, that is a systemic failing. And so like, I don't blame people who have more resources for using those resources. What I want is like, we should be expecting more from our society, from our government, you know, and I think we have to talk about these things because we perceive them as individual things, but like, it's not on one person who hires a nanny to solve like how we do all of those things. But I do think it is their responsibility to talk about, I have a nanny because I need help. I maybe I'm assuming again, I always assume good intent. Like I want to pay them more, but like, it's, that's not what other people pay them. And also like we it's, it's expensive for us. Right. Like, but those kinds of things, like how we value care and how we value all those things. And like the education system, like these are, it's hard. It's complicated. It is slow, but we, we have to talk about it. We have to talk. We haven't been talking about it and it hasn't gotten better. (laughs) Like nothing's changing, you know? And so, and I also believe like, I'm not going to like bend the world. I'm not going to be able to like completely, you know, change revolutionize our healthcare system or how we, you know, pay if we can pay mothers or domestic workers better. But I also really believe that just talking about it is the first step, you know, like we have so much more in common than we have apart. I think it's really, that sounds so Pollyanna and like idealistic, but. No, but it's true. Yeah. Of course, it's a bigger, you look at, you know, a friend of mine was living in a graduate student. She was living in France and she was like the daycare there is exquisite. You know, there are these Sorbonne trained childcare workers. It's, I can't remember what she said. It was like $8 an hour, something Mm -hmm. that was intentionally affordable for families, all families and this enriching, amazing experience, right? Because it's perceived as this very honorable and necessary good. And yes, because it is, it is exactly. Yeah. And we know this, like data shows that, you know, investing in children, 
and investing in family health at an early age, like those, that has real public health benefits that ha it pays dividends down the road. So I don't know why we are not investing in that. You right. Know? Because we don't, I mean, I've, well, it's this, uh, another grand mythology that we're supposed mm -hmm. to be in these nuclear families and that we're supposed to somehow, I mean, as you mentioned, we, I have, I live in a thruple, a sexless thruple, but. Oh, I didn't know um, that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I am in a hetero, I'm in a very normal heterosexual marriage, but Vicky has been with our family since my oldest was two months old, huh. right before I went back to the office. And I'm I'm not in a throuple, but <laughs> no, we I, have a third parent. I yeah, mean, and yeah. you know, she's family at this point and beyond. And not only would my kids not survive or thrive, I would die without her. I can't mm. imagine. I mean, like to not to know that there's not a tripod supporting our family. We live. We yeah. don't have any family here. You know, and even when in the pandemic, when you were writing about your pod and bringing each other food and this idea that you know that there are 10 adults who can discipline your children, who can look out for them. Mm -hmm. That is not the reality in America anymore, right? And, yeah. and it hasn't been probably since our Neolithic alloparenting heritage where children were raised communally and mm -hmm. We helped each other out. Yeah. I mean, it is not how it's been. If the pandemic has made me hopeful about something, it is that we have seen people pod up. I actually hate the term pod, but, you know, it's people it's pod up. It's very invasion of the body snatchers to me. I know it's <laughs> Yeah, it's a related, weird, but. <laughs> yeah. But people, like, came together, you know, and I know that a good friend of mine in New York, like, she had a quote unquote pod with a family that, you know, their like economic situations are very different. And she was like, would we be friends under normal circumstances? She was like, I don't know. She was like, but I like them and our children get along so well. They like went on a vacation together. And, but that sort of like forced people together in different ways. Right. And it, again, like made very clear, like we can't do this. Like exactly what you were saying, like two parents actually is not enough. You know, no. like my husband and I are not enough. We're lucky because my parents live close by, right? We have, we've like, lee I think a lot of us have leaned into community in a way that is not necessarily what we were expecting, right? And I'd love to see more of that. Like we just had our, I call them our co-family. We had them over for dinner last <laughs> night and we were like, I feel like we haven't seen each other in like over two weeks. And as things open up and as we start doing different things, I realized I don't want to stop seeing them. Like I still want to yeah. have dinner with them, you know? And I feel like that's, that's a thing that I'd like us to lean into, you know, to like get to know people who, you know, like a, a pandemic made us reach out to people who maybe we wouldn't have reached out to before to get closer to them in ways that are not, oh, I see you and totally understand you as a creative person or what you're doing, like with your life's work, but I know you're a person who needs help. Right. And, you know, it's actually not that big a deal to add one more kid to my afternoon. I'm already watching two, you know? Right. And like, I think that's one of the ways that we um, can counteract this like nuclear family stuff. Cause I've just seen it. This is how people have been doing it. Like we've, we hear about people talking about mutual aid. Like there are, I mean, I don't know if you have these in LA, we have these things called little free libraries 
where people the little just like have red these... libraries on the sidewalks. Yeah. There's yeah. been this, like, I think that there's more little free libraries in my neighborhood than actually we need, <laughs> but like, there's been so many of those because I think, again, it's that human urge where it's like, I want to do something I want to yeah. share. And like, books are a great way to do that. And there's like children's toys. We have a community fridge like down yes. the road from us now. And all of that stuff is how people have been surviving all along, like people who have been living in poverty, people who have had limited resources, marginalized people, like they've always been making community, you know, like we've always been making community in different ways. And this is a great opportunity to like expand our ideas of that. And people with privilege, I think it's an, it's an opportunity to be like, oh, there's other ways of doing this, you know? I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Well, it's so it's so interesting when you think, and this obviously predates the pandemic, but you think about this structure of the government that we've come to rely on for all of these things, and then how that's failing that we rely on our employers, which is also the pandemic showed maybe not not so wise to structure our healthcare through an at-will employment agreement. Yeah. Right? And again, that's like a human right that we have tied to work. So you right. have to prove that you deserve basic health care. Right. And then no. you have this, yeah, caregivers are the largest workforce with no workplace, right? And I mean, maybe and now, we should start talking about how the home 
is a workplace. Like, yeah, you know that to be true. Yeah, totally. This is my office. Welcome. <laughs> but yeah, and then you get into this idea of like, go fund me. You know, there is this desire, go fund me being one example or this need of like, you have a need, state the need, and I will help you meet the need. And it's in some ways, it's perverse because how are we here, right? When we're supposed yeah. to be so much better than this. And yet at the same time, it's so affirming to recognize that someone can put out a need. And obviously, it's an, not an, a not a perfect system. Right. But, but that, that people do want to meet needs. Yeah, people want to. That's the thing. That's what's so beautiful. And I think that's what frustrates me about our institutions because care is again for I think for the 15th time it is a natural human inclination I think it's a value it's built into us right Right. the need for it and the desire to give it or the obligation to it it's inescapable we do it but the problem that I have with our institutions is that care is not part of them that's what's not built into them that's what they're lacking like we don't have institutions that actually want to take care of people. That's that's what's become clear to me, you know? Yeah. And I think there are people working within it who want to figure out ways to do that. But at heart, it's really hard, right? To like think about just to get like the ACA done, that was like a real fight, right? And then when we were, I mean, I am so grateful that we have a different administration now, (laughs) but I do feel sort of disappointed in it because we were talking about paid leave. We were talking about, you know, care as infrastructure. We were talking about all of these things. And then when they were debating, when Congress was, you know, trying to hammer out the American rescue plan, I saw like Democrats who have a majority be like, okay, we'll take paid leave off the table. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Like this is, these are like, I was seeing people be like, care has to be part of our governmental system. We, we, want, we want to bring care into this. But then when it became hard, it was like going away. You know, like, yeah. I don't think those things should be negotiable. And I don't have the answers. I, I don't want to like talk in circles. Like, I don't know exactly how we do this. I know that there are people, and I'm so grateful for advocates who are fighting for that. I feel like we need people at every level. Like I'm here, we're here talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing, like day to day where this lives is what you're saying. Well, what we've been talking about is people take care of each other. That's mm-hmm. like how it gets done on a day-to-day basis. And how do we get more people involved in that? How do we expand that absent of it coming from, you know, I don't want to say top down, but, you know, government. Yeah. yeah. And how do we restructure our society so care is in the middle And how do we start to quantify and appropriately value these priceless activities that are currently either unpaid or Mm -hmm. very, very poorly paid in our culture? And I mean, you think it's, it's, and we all saw this. It was a cultural awakening in our recognition of essential workers in the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. When people were literally, and you talk about sort of, the Filipina nurses dying at wildly disproportionate rates. It's they're 4% of the nursing yeah, workforce and 34% of deaths. Is that yes. right? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for knowing that statistic and bringing it up. Cause that was, I mean, my mom is a nurse. She's retired now, but that hit me so hard. I mean, 
it hit me, of course, that black and brown people were dying at a higher rate, you know, of COVID in those early days. But I saw that and I was like, oh, it, it just, even in this, prof- that, I mean, nurses are caregivers, but in this professionalized setting, you know, Filipina nurses were working in IC units and ICU units and critical care because, you know, years ago, th- that stuff is like way more intimate with patients, like that kind of work. And they were jobs that white nurses like preferred not to have. And so Filipina nurses took those jobs. And to me, it was just like, it hit home so personally where it just felt like, oh, even in these professional essential workers, we value these brown lives less. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard. It was a really hard truth to um, to confront. It was like a thing of like, oh, I guess I've sort of always known this, but I'm privileged enough for it to feel sort of theoretical. Yeah, it made it so real. And that's why in the book, I, I didn't set out to, you know, like write my family's immigration story, but it's kind of what set me on the journey for having that element of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's a staggering statistic. And we know, we know that we saw this, right? Like we were home captive and then, but the people out in the world who were keeping us fed, keeping produce coming out of the ground, mm-hmm. collecting our garbage, processing um, the chickens in processing the, the chickens. Yeah. Exactly. Like these are, these are people who kept us alive, all of us collectively beyond the mothering of children. But again, bringing that mm-hmm. mothering out to this bigger idea that's not attached to a gender. And it seemed hopeful and maybe it can continue to be hopeful of this mass recognition of these are the people, this this person, this garbage man is far more important to my daily life and survival and health than the CEO of the, you know, tech search company who lives down the street, right? But how backwards we are. And I just don't think it would be that difficult to re-engineer our society. It's not saying that we don't need markets or that we don't need financial structures and systems or that they need to be wholesale reinvented. They just need to be replumbed and reprioritized according to what's essential. And then we haven't even talked about the planet. But it's on all of us to mother our <laughs> and we mother. we haven't even talked about, yeah, yeah. That's a, <laughs> yes. I mean, it, there's so many, I, I love that this is an expansive conversation around the concept of mothering, which is really what I want to do is like grow that to think about care work, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, like we can still, I mean, my personal preference would be to do away with capitalism and have socialist <laughs> feminism, but that's just me. I'll admit that. From the, we definitely from the need a little bit more socialism. <laughs> I'm with you. But I do think like to have those essential workers that we're talking about, you know, the people who are processing our food, who were also dying of COVID and we're not allowed to take time off, right. To keep our food supply going, to lift those people up so that they could have you know, workers' rights and a living wage and protections and healthcare, it does not mean that we don't have tech CEOs, right? Right. It does not mean that. Like you can, people could be as ambitious, as professionally minded, like there's still, there would still be plenty of wealth to go around. Then that's what I, to go back to that idea of just sort of sharing, there would, would just be a little less, 
you know, right. but like sometimes my husband and I play this game where we're like, if we were rich and we had a lot of money, like what would we spend it on? Like, and after a certain point, it's just like, what? I mean, I guess you make a rocket to space. Like, I know. It, it, it just feels like there's still so much. There would still be so much for people and they would still get to live the lives they wanted to live. It's really about just believing that everyone is entitled to a nice, simple life, you know, where they don't have to choose between paying rent, you know, getting their child's insulin. Right. Yeah. It's inhumane. That's how I think of it. It's inhumane the way that we live. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I, I mean, the distortion of needing to go to space right now is so wild and it's so meta, like thinking about the Elon Musk's of the world and his fascination and with AI. And to me, he seems like also someone who clearly thinks that in many, I mean, money is just energy, right? It's just ones and years and we made it up. It's uh-huh. not, it doesn't actually provide safety or security. Certainly not from a virus. I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways you're you're protected because you don't have to leave your house, but you can die. You yeah. Can die. I mean, anyone can die. And the pandemic is still going on. I mean, I remember having this conversation with my husband at the beginning of the year was when Omicron was happening. And I, after like winter break, I didn't want to send our preschooler to preschool for the first week. I was like, if she's going to get it, this is like when she would get it right? Everyone's coming back from winter break. They're supposed to quarantine. I don't really think everyone's going to do that. And um, he just said, I don't don't know if that's necessary. You know, he was like, I think, and also if she gets it, it would probably be mild, you know, because she's a child, but she's unvaccinated. And I just had this moment with him where I was like, are are you listening to yourself? I was like, first of all, I I think that's kind of ableist, right? (laughs) Like, because someone could get sick and like mild or not, like, but what's mild for some person could be devastating for somebody else. And I, I mean, I just said to him, I was like, I don't want her to get it at all. You know what I mean? Like she could, we don't know what's going to happen. There's so much that we don't know. And yeah, like we are all so vulnerable still. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't mean to like, there's sort of a bit of a digression, but this idea though, like it really did for me, I've taken it so to heart that we are all so vulnerable at all times, especially for a virus that we really don't know that much about. And that keeps changing. You know, right. I, I do feel like we're on a better side of it. You know, I think that things will, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful for the first time in a long time, but yeah, it's still, I mean, that vulnerability, I don't want it to be a thing that we fear, but we are all vulnerable. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. 
Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. This is life. In order to become anything, like mm-hmm. vulnerability is required, right? It's, it's required of every living thing, like mm-hmm. a seedling, a baby. And again, going back to this idea of mothering, to the recognition of that and the care that's required of that vulnerability to get it to sturdier life where it in mm-hmm. turn can do that for someone else or the next generation. Absent that, we're lost. Yeah. I mean, w- without a doubt, like there's just no, <laughs> yes. And I, you know, that, that vulnerability is a place where we can see, I think two important things. One interdependence, you know, I think about people who are like, why should I pay for like, you know, when someone goes on maternity, they're like I have to do that work. Right. Or like, why should we have to pay for like kids to like have healthcare or something? And that, that mentality to me is like, were you not a child? Like, do you yeah. not have a parent? Like you have benefited from care. Yeah. Right. And so I think like pointing that out and saying to people, you know, and also when you get old, like someone's going to have to care for you. If you get sick, like we have, it's vulnerability is not a bad thing. Right. And it also shows us that interdependence. And then well, I think I lost my second thought about vulnerability. But well, and okay. paid family leave yeah. is for all all leave, right? It's for all caretaking, and obviously yes. it's for for children and babies. But it's in maternity and paternity leave. But it's also for aging parents or mm-hmm. someone who you know a partner who might get cancer, and you might need to take time off. It's an yeah, essential or yeah, or like net. be in an accident, right? Or right. any of the many things that like could befall us, or like you get long COVID, you know, like there's at some point, everyone or, and like people that you love are going to need care. It is just, we're not invincible. 
And that's, yeah, I mean, that's why I love the expanding family leave in every way, right? Bereavement, right? Like, it's all of that stuff. Like, we need to be able to take time and take care. And there are obviously interesting human resources, human services approaches to things like making maternity leave equitable for others who might choose otherhood in a way that I think is also very compelling. And it goes to this idea that we all also need self-care, we need sabbaticals, we need moments of creative intubation and to normalize that. So Mm -hmm. sure, you might be a 55-year-old gay man who's chosen that he doesn't want to be a dad, but maybe you need like that, let's call it nine weeks of time to tend to your other passions like it would be we could create a much more interesting work experience if we could just soften like just soften a little bit for for humanity yes and then think about you know when that person comes back the sort of perspective that they have like the creativity they've been able to indulge the like the energy that they can bring, you know, it's like investing in people is a, I think that that's what a lot of this is about is really investing in people and nurturing them in various ways at various stages in life, because we don't even really know fully like what happens when we do that. And my belief is that it would be beneficial, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just, I think it would be beneficial for all of us to acknowledge openly and without shame how much we need other people, how much yeah. we need care, how dependent we are on other people for services, mm-hmm. and to stop hiding that and to start venerating that and making it a social good? I mean, I don't, that's not the right word, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I love, I love that you just said venerate. I'm like, this is honorable work, you know, like it's all necessary. And I think that that's the, this idea of some work being unskilled is that to me is a, another myth that's used to say that like, we should pay some people less than we pay others. You know, work is work. And since we all have to work right in this country, it shouldn't be a threat. It, it shouldn't be. It's not about like it takes away from your skills. It's just understanding that every job has different things that are required of it, you know, and to be good at a job and to be able to do things requires some mastery and understanding of things. Oh, yeah. And there isn't like all of it is good and all of it is worthy and all of it oh, is yeah. important. Totally. I mean, I think about Vicky and I think about her, you know, she's a grandmother. She I was going to ask, does Vicky have yeah. children? Like, yeah. She does. Okay. Yeah, she has grown kids. She has grandkids. And she lives about an hour and a half away. Her husband is about an hour and a half away in Riverside. And so she lives with us during the week. And then she leaves at lunchtime on Friday uh-huh. and comes at lunchtime on Monday. And yeah, and I think about this a lot. Like, what would it feel like if... Vicky was with us and had her own kids. So we've been saved from a lot of those uncomfortable, like, but she needs to work. She's part of a two family income family, sorry, two income family in the same way that my husband and I both work Mm -hmm. two income family. And yeah, like I, I love and venerate her and, you know, we pay her uh, effectively my husband's salary 
mm-hmm. post tax salary, a little bit above that, and we pay for her and her husband's benefits fully. And does I, she have? Does she get paid time off and like vacation? Thank you for being so. Yeah, like people are not yeah, she, upfront about this stuff. So she I, gets I'm paid time off. Yeah. We pay whenever we're gone. We pay her fully. She takes. She mm-hmm. goes home. She goes to see her mom in Guatemala for two weeks a year. Paid. She probably gets six weeks paid off. Yeah. If I had to guess, it's funny. I mean, we're not great at like counting hours. We just pay. Yeah. But it's funny. Max, my oldest, was like talking about how much he loved Vicky. And he was like, I know, and I know we pay her, but he was trying to essentially articulate, he's eight, and he was like trying to articulate this idea of like, would she still love me if we didn't pay her to love me? Yeah. It was like a really interesting conversation. I was like, I think, I think Vicky will always love you and always be part of your life and would be in your life if she weren't paid, but like, it's an honor to pay her. God, I love this. I mean, this, these are the conversations that we really need to be having where it is, how do you, I'm so glad that you're in this position to do this and that you value it, you know, that it's important to you to pay her well, like to talk about that. Like, what is that? Like, cause you have to decide those things. And like, that's not the standard, you know, but I think there are a lot of people who would like to do those things, but maybe they just don't even realize like that's a thing that they could do. Right. Like, and one of the, like one of the things I've been saying, people are like, what are actionable steps? You know? And I've been like, if you have the like ability to give your nanny or like housekeeper a raise, like do it. Do Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it makes a huge material difference. Right. And I also think like that idea of what Max is talking about is another hugely important part of it, which is that, Domestic workers, yes, like there's the economic transactional part of it, but like you're not good at your job and Vicky would not be with you for this long if there wasn't real affection, real knowledge, real like, and again, that's like harder to quantify, but like this is skilled work. Like these people are professionals, you know, they are good at what they do, like, and they love and they give affection and they do it every day, you know, despite what's going on in their lives, despite how they might miss their husband, you know, like it is so, that's what I mean. Like this idea that it is unskilled is Mm. it's makes me so angry, you know, I'm with you. I mean, she's gifted in ways like well beyond the ways that I am. And she, in turn, enables me to be able to write and do my work and hopefully in a way that feels appropriately reciprocal. I mean, I would buy her a house if I could. I would do anything for her. I, I, um, like she hung the stars and the moon in my eyes. So she's kind of the center of our family, actually. I love that. I mean, I actually, when you were like, I'm in a sexless thruple, I was like, oh, I mean, I have a friend who's like now in a thruple and I was like, oh, is it like, I'm, I don't talk more about this, but like, but that's such a, I mean, I love it where it's this idea too, where it's like, there is enough love to go around enough work to be done. You know what I mean? Yeah. That it, it is, that it works better, like in this arrangement. And I think people should, I, I just love that. It is again, like that interdependence that we have are so locked into a certain way of thinking. And then we feel ashamed if we like stray from that or need to do other things. But I, it, it, it's, it requires imagination and creativity. It requires time and investment and getting to know someone. And that's how you community build. Like there's no one simple answer. 
it's inefficient, right? Like it's slow. Like it, it is um, that relationship building. It's the most important stuff, but it, it doesn't just happen. Like you really have to invest yeah. as we've been saying, like investing in people fully investing in their humanity. Yeah. And the exchange of love. I mean, it feels good. It's what we're here for. Yes. It's the best feeling. <laughs> it's the best feeling of all. I've been thinking a lot about this conversation and this idea of needfulness being the most essential quality of our humanity and the interdependence that comes from that. I don't know if I overshared in terms of my relationship with Vicky, but I just wanted to reiterate that it's been one of the most important relationships in my life, both teaching me how to allow and accept support and also the priceless nature of watching someone else love and accept your children. There is no way I will ever be able to appropriately compensate her for what she has given our family, and specifically me. I would not feel so comfortable working and writing if it were not for her anchoring support. I'm sure some of you are doing the math, too, and wondering why Rob doesn't just stop working in order to be a stay-at-home dad, because it theoretically makes economic sense. But he values his work, he provides insurance for our family, and then we wouldn't have Vicky. We would be so much poorer without her presence in our lives. She enables both of us to be better parents. It's also worth underlining that we are in a very privileged position to be able to afford support. And I think that's the point. We all deserve help raising our children. Your children are my children too. They belong to all of us. I hold a prayer that here in America, we will come to some sort of sense and start properly compensating childcare workers, teachers, and supporting parents who need those services and need them to be deeply and profoundly affordable. There are ways to bridge that gap. And incidentally, it's all parents who need that. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. 
Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.